Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Antonio Garrido, who's co-CEO of Sandler Miami. He is author of two fabulous books, Asking Questions the Sandler Way and The 21st Century Ride Along. Antonio, welcome. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Thank you for the invitation, Marcus. I do appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Um, I had your brother Carlos on not long ago. He went down well, so you've got a very high bar to meet. I shall I shall do my very best to be terribly interesting. Excellent. Good stuff. So Antonio, could you give the audience a quick rundown on in 90 seconds on your background and how you ended up doing what you're doing? Gosh, yes. I like most, uh, not most, many Sandler owners was a client. I was a client for many years. I was fortunate enough that my trainer, my coach was a chap called Tom Neeson, which might mean something to people listening. I know it certainly does to you, Tom. So I was a client for many years and I ran four of the largest top 60 PLCs, which if you're in America listening, that'd be Fortune 60 companies. So I was fortunate enough to run some very large companies with some very large sales teams. I was originally an architect. My second degree was in uh, marketing, and I came through to leadership by the sales and marketing route. Some people come through the accountancy route, some people come through logistics or or manufacturing, but I was a salesman and marketeer uh, at heart forever. Wow, what an interesting background. So how come you've transitioned and made such a massive turnaround? (laughs) <laughs> well, I, do, I don't, I don't know. I think that all companies are sales and marketing at their heart, and if they're not, then they're doing something wrong. So, I think every CEO uh, should be uh, a marketeer. I actually say marketeer as opposed to a salesperson because I think sales actually fits within marketing. I think it's. A I sub- agree. It's a subset. Yeah, exactly. The answer, to, the short answer, would be: I got tired of making money for other people. I guess. Like <laughs> then. Genuinely, uh, my brother Carlos and I, I was deciding, my wife and I, we were about to be empty nesters. We have four children. We were about to be in a very... old enough to have empty nests. Oh, well, I don't, well <laughs> thank you. Thanks very much. But I, I, I can assure you, I am where I was. And so we decided, uh, uh, the company I worked for, their head office was in Dallas, which is why Tom was my coach. And Every month I'd go for a board meeting and then I would swing by Miami because this is where my brother was living because he was working for uh, a large pharmaceutical company called AstraZeneca. And so we were coming to Miami very often and one drunken night round his pool and I'd often bring my wife with me because the company would pay for her too. We decided that we were going to buy a company in Miami. And so we found a pool queue manufacturing company, right, yeah. to so that's what I was going to buy so that I could come and live in the sunshine. And when I told Tom, my Sandler coach, that I was going to put all of this nonsense behind me and go and make pool cues for a living, he became rather indignant. And he said, no, you're not going to do that. I'll call you back. Said, that's very odd. So I put the phone down and he spoke to our CEO, Dave Matson. called me back 15 minutes later and said, you're not going to make pool cues for a living. You're going to open the Sandler office in Miami. And I went, I don't think I am, Tom. He said, no, you are. And when I told my wife, when I told my wife about the conversation later in the day, she said, no, Tom's right. You're not making pool cues. You're going to do the Sandler nonsense. And then as I, okay, let's do that then. As I was putting that together, Carlos was doing lots of 
kind of due diligence for me. And he said, can I join in? So that's how that happened. So that's why I'm in Miami with a British accent, but a Spanish name. My father's Spanish, my mother's Greek. And so, um, yeah, we've been here for, I well, we, we started the company just about six years ago, just over six years, six and a half years ago. Fabulous. So tell me, why did you write the 21st century ride-along? <laughs> it was desperately needed. I, when I first got... Um, I'm not citing you on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, do you know, it's a long story, but I'll try and make it as short as, as possible. My first sales manager's job was for an organization, huge organization, called Redland, which some people may know. They make bricks and tiles and terracotta and huge, huge. They were, they were a top 60 PLC, and, and we had, from memory, about 150 sales people. One of the first things that they told me when I joined the company, they said, welcome aboard. Here's your office, but we don't want to see you in it. I'm like, okay, have I been fired on my first day? And they said, um, yeah, we're big, huge proponents here of Field accompaniment, they called it, right? So the ride along. So we don't expect to see you sat in your office every day doing admin. We expect you to be out in the field. So I thought, okay, cool. I had no training, genuinely no training to right. My first sales manager's job. I had trained in management, and I had tra- I'd, I'd run some small divisions for some other companies. And suddenly, I was a sales manager, and they told me to go and do some ride alongs. Cool, thought I. You know what could be what could be easier? And I'm a reasonably jolly, windswept and interesting chap. And I like talking to people. So I thought, yeah, let's do that. I arranged lots of days out in the field with, with people I hadn't yet met. So I just sent lots of emails, said, see you a week on Thursday, see you two weeks on Monday, right? And so set all this stuff up. My first ride along, I mean, it just, it, it, it's just unbelievable. My first ride along, Well, before I tell you the story, which is super interesting, I'll tell you a story that I talk about in the book, Uh, a concept I introduced pretty early on, which is Queen, you know, the nice lady on the stamps, right? So the Queen of England, she must think that the world smells of paint, right? She must do, because wherever she goes, they paint it fresh for her. Exactly. There's 15 feet. Yeah, they do. They do. So she must think the world smells of paint because 15 feet in front of everybody's sprucing the place up, right? So this is in my first day, my first ride along with a person I've never met, right? Going to see a client I've never met. We'd been in this meeting. Everyone was introduced and everybody was all very, uh, very pleasant to one another. And 15 minutes into the interview, at the meeting, the client said, could you just excuse me for one second, please? Uh, uh, we were actually, we were in Reading, not too far from where you are, Marcus. That's where my office is. Yeah. So he disappeared out of the room for 30 seconds. I mean, no time at all, really. Came back into the room with an enormous pair of scissors, right? He leaned across the table. He grabbed the tie of my salesperson, right? And he cut it in half. He cut it off. And he went, you've been selling to me for three years and you've never worn a tie in your life. Why are you wearing one today? That was <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And I, and, and I thought to myself, aha, the world is smelling of paint, right? I thought... This has been completely stage managed and, and everybody's kind of like watching their P's and Q's and 
and everybody's kind of behaved. But this guy went, I'm not standing for it. He actually gave him a company tie, right? So, And they were big friends. They were big pals. They'd known each other for ages. And so everybody took it all in the spirit that it was intending. But there's an enormous lesson in there. that, And, and suddenly I'm hyper aware of what, what are the days that the individuals are setting up for the boss to see, right? And, and it became very clear to me that, <laughs> that I was being used as a tool to either solve the problems that they couldn't solve, close the deals that they couldn't deal, um, just get lots of praise, 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 praise. And at the end of the day, there'd be a talk about... Um, uh, can we have a salary review, right, turned into a PDR, right? And and I'm thinking, I am being managed here. I'm being managed, right? I'm the manager. And I, thought, I need to figure this stuff out. So uh, that was my baptism by fire. And the company had some great ride-along principles that we talk about in the book. We don't reference the company, but those habits, those techniques – became my life, right? And we develop, uh, I developed them over time and over time and over time. Right, so back to your original question. So I joined another company. Sandler was a training provider. And uh, I thought, well, there's bound to be a bunch of stuff on ride-alongs, right? Bound to be, obvious, right? <laughs> right? So, um, and guess how much material there was? It rhymes with hero, <laughs> right? Nothing, right? So when I actually wrote my first book, which is about questioning, this was the book I wanted to write. But I thought, I'll get the questioning one out of the way because that I thought would have impact in a different way. And I wanted to write the questioning book for sales people. And then I wanted to write the ride-along book for sales. Even though in the book we talk about it's not written for sales managers, Half of the book is written for salespeople. Half of the book is written for sales managers. Oh, now I'm going to tell you another half of the book, three halves you can't have. But uh, the other third of the book is actually for leaders and other people in other positions like customer service, perhaps, or you know, the CEO. Who rides along the CEO, right? And who does the CEO ride along with? So, so we, we come up with it from uh, uh, lots of different angles, we talk about virtual ride-alongs, right, which is our world right now, of course, because everybody's in uh, shelter-at-home orders, but that won't last forever. Customer service, people ride-along calls, complaints. There's, there's, if you think about it, ride-alongs happen all over the place. You just haven't perhaps spotted them. Make sense? Well, I think one other area that they have historically or should historically have happened is in the channel. So channel yeah. managers should be spending yeah. a load of time out in the field with their partners. So let's start with what are the typical uh, mistakes that people make in uh, the setup of a ride-along? My football team is Manchester City, right? So, And I mean football where there's a ball that you kick with your foot. If there's any people in America listening, it's the thing that you throw, right? But so soccer. So my football team is Manchester City, and the manager for Manchester City is a chap called Pep Guardiola, right? And so we have one of the best managers in the world coaching, managing some of the best players in the world. Imagine what the owner of Manchester City would have said to Pep Guardiola if on Pep Guardiola's first day at Manchester City, 
if they said, well, welcome aboard, Pep. It's our first game uh, of the season uh, on Saturday. I know we've not given you much time to prepare, but I'll see you on the sidelines. What do you think the, the owner of Manchester City would have said if Pep Guardiola would have said, do you know what? I'm not really one for... I'll be at home tending my uh, geraniums, but I'll read all about the report in the sports pages the day after. I, I think that's kind of more like the kind of manager I am. How long do you think we'd have lasted in Manchester City? Not very long, right? It'd have been a very short conversation. The second word would have been off, I imagine. So if you think about that analogy of the manager, of course the manager is going to watch every single game. More than that, they're going to watch every single training session they're going to when you think about all of the things that managers do and i'm talking coaches of teams they organize the strategy and the tactics for the game who's playing who isn't they look at their bench and they're constantly looking for better players they're constantly managing and coaching and training and they're actively involved before the game during the game they'll course correct and then afterwards they'll, they'll identify training needs and That'll inform what they're then doing in the training, set, right? So there's a lot of similarities. One thing to point out, the manager is and the coach is often yelling from the sidelines and the players do nothing with that. Uh, it's when they go back in at half time. Right. And that's when they give them the pep talk and then you see the change. Right. And then I'm really curious to see what you teach around making sure that the manager coaches appropriately and right. isn't just by yelling and waving their arms about. Right. Great. So I should come back to that. I should come to that in a second. The other thing that you don't see is Pep Guardiola, right? So uh, Aguero, who's our striker, our Argentinian world-beating striker, he's just about to take a free kick, right? And you don't see Pep Guardiola go, can everybody just stop and run onto the pitch and take the kick for him? Right? You, that never happens, right? People in America listening, that the coach doesn't run on and, and take the ball out of Patrick Mahomes' hands and, and throw the ball because he knows how to throw the ball better than the quarterback because, of course, he doesn't, right? So, but how often do we see sales managers see the sales guy floundering and take over and jump in and try to rescue and all of that good Cartman triangle stuff, so, you know, uh, victim, rescue, persecutor and so on, all that drama stuff, which I know you're a big fan of. So the similarity is that a coach of a football team, soccer team, baseball, basketball, ice hockey, whatever, is very active in the development of their individuals and the team as a whole. And you get the team, the team gets better by the individuals getting better. It's self-evident, QED, right? And so they spend a lot of time with the people identifying, is this a management need? Is this a coach need? Or is this a training need? So I'm going to come to answer your question in a second. However, let's just flip the lens just for a second. Isn't it also interesting how, how Aguero, who is one of the best players on the planet, and there's 7.8 billion people on the planet, he's one of the best soccer players on the planet, he doesn't say, I don't need to come to training next week, boss, right? Because I figured this stuff out. I've been doing this stuff for 20 years, and you can't tell me. He doesn't do any of that. And during the game, he's constantly asking for feedback and he's constantly asking, how can I get better? And he's constantly looking to try and improve himself. And is it interesting? You know, you think of the chicken and egg. Is he one of the best players in the world because he has enough self-awareness to know that he's not the best? 
but he wants to get better. And so he's constantly asking for critique, not criticism and feedback. And, and, and so many times, a sales individual, they're almost offended, they're affronted. If their manager says, hey, listen, we're going to spend a couple of days together in a few weeks. And they go, why? I mean, they're almost insulted if the manager wants to come out with them because they say, I've been doing this for 30 years and I, I, I know what I'm doing. You don't need to tell me, right? Or they think they're in trouble if the manager says, let's spend a couple of days together because so often a ride-along is just somebody gathering evidence <laughs> to be able to get rid of somebody, right? It, it's staggering how the ride-along has been misused by managers and 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 kind of misappropriated for different purposes. And the salespeople think that ride-alongs are just for a novice salesperson to spend a couple of days with an experienced salesperson, and then they know how to do their job. Yeah, you know, every six- the first 17 years of my career, I had one day where one of my managers came out with me. That was it. And that's and the problem. I didn't improve. I was shockingly bad. And the idea that I had 17 years experience was a fiction. Well, I had a, probably about a month to the power of 16 times 12 because I, I didn't really learn anything substantial after the first month in terms of technique. I learned uh, through scar tissue, but that's a very slow way of learning. So one of the other things I see a lot of resistance on is technologies like Gong and Refract, which use AI uh, in yep. order to analyze calls. People view it as big brother. But actually, what it is, is an opportunity to turn every mistake you make into a teachable moment yeah. and to learn from it. And yeah. the COVID, every single call, video calls, every sales call, every prospecting call can be a wealth of useful information to improve. You're absolutely right. And if you come to, if, if anybody that's listening has Amazon Prime, if you have Amazon Prime, you get Prime TV, and there is a series called All or Nothing. And what it does is it follows about 20 coaches for a season. You're either fly on the wall and you're watching all of the coaches in all of the locker room talks and so on. But what you also get, Marcus, for those, those really world-class, best-in-class teams, there's a lot of technology that they do too. They're taking blood samples constantly. They're all on breathing and respirators. And there's a lot of technology to, to what they do. And, and, and I'm glad that that tech is coming into the sales world because we have to professionalize. If you think about a pilot, right? Do you remember, do you remember, the, do you remember airplanes where we used to fly around and go around the world? Do you remember those big things that with the wings on? I miss those, right? <laughs> I've not been on an airplane. I actually genuinely miss them. Imagine a pilot, an experienced pilot that knows how to fly. And the airline write to him and say, hey, the FAA, which is the aviation authority, have now said for global warming that we're only allowed to taxi with one engine. So every pilot has to go in the flight simulator and demo that they know how to do that so that they can be approved to taxi around all the big airports in the world. Imagine what the airline would say if a pilot that got the email said, do you know what? I know how to taxi with one engine. Uh, I don't need that. Thanks very much. What would the airline say to them? They'd say bye-bye. Yes, yeah, see ya. Or if they said, yeah, you've got, you got to get your 30 hours in your flight simulator this year, Frank, right? 
And if the guy said, uh, I don't fly, no, I don't think so. I don't need to do, I don't need that, which is training, which is role play, which is all of that muscle memory stuff. And in the flight, in the flight simulator, what do they do? Of course, they might ask them to go into the flight simulator because the 747's got a new t- cockpit instrument cluster layout, and they've got to make sure that they're approved for that. Same with the surgeon, same with any kind of professional, and I you know, quote unquote professional pursuit where where we're constantly trying to raise the bar, constantly, you know, the world is checked, but not for sales. And and when the pilot sits in the flight simulator, what they don't say is, hey captain, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take off from New York. So taxi to runway four. We're going to go, you know, come out easterly, turn right on a on a heading or bearing of, climb to this altitude. And in eight and a half hours, you're going to be in, in uh, Heathrow and then land the thing. Then they sit there for eight and a half hours looking at perfectly clear sky. That's not what they do in the flight simulator, right? In the yeah. flight simulator, they blow engines up and get hit by lightning and wheels don't come down and hydraulics don't work and there's an there's electrical fire and all the power, right? That's what they do in a flight simulator. And imagine if that there's a pilot who engine four catches fire and in 14 times on the trot where he's tried to land the plane with an engine on fire right he crashes 14 mm. times in a row that they say oh well better look next time frank here's the keys you're flying to tenerife with 380 people on Saturday. <laughs> no, no they don't right <laughs> they keep going till they get it right correct and when you think about all of these there are ride-alongs all over the you just kind of don't spot them and you wouldn't want a surgeon working on your knee right a surgeon is trained in a certain way where where somebody coaches them through the set they watch it a million times and then somebody coaches them and then they assist and then whilst the other the experienced guy is watching and taking notes and helping him and guiding him afterwards and you wouldn't want somebody to operate giving you a a false knee if it's his first day on the job but we give sales guys, here's your car key, here's your territory, here are your accounts, here's your target, by the way. We're giving you all the product training, off you go. Anyone can take an order, but very few people can sell. And what's really key here is that ride-alongs, coaching, self-development, investing in yourself, training, all about elevating your game so that you get better. So. Yeah. Let's take a step back for a second. What, what are the ground rules that a manager needs to have in place uh, in order to ensure that the salesperson feels safe and that you derive, both sides derive value from uh, the time you spent on a ride-along? That's a great question. I think the number one rule, if I, if I had to take the whole book and distill it into like the critical elements of it, I, I would say that the number one rule is Everybody agree the roles that they're going to play. What do I mean by that? I mean that if it's a call where the sales manager is there specifically to observe and take lots of notes, and I'll talk about what all those processes might look like, but the principle of if the sales manager is there to observe, to take lots of notes, to record what you know he or she is seeing – and explains that I'm looking for management opportunities, coaching opportunities, and training opportunities. 
So this is my role. That's your role. And make sure that we explain that to the, the, the client exactly what's going on upfront contract in our language, right? So, so long as the upfront contracts are clear and everybody knows what they're doing, what their roles are, then things will typically go well. We had in my, you know, that first job I taught, taught you about where, where most of my job was, was doing ride-alongs, we had a quote-unquote safe word, right? So I'm a fairly uh, ebullient and chatty individual, <laughs> as you know, and uh, I would find myself, we'd all agree what the roles were, and I would completely ignore the rules, <laughs> ignore our agreement. And after five minutes, the only voice in the room was mine right? Because I'm a high eye and I kind of try to take over. When somebody asks a question, I would like dive in to want to give, quote unquote, the right answer to demo to the individual, you know, what he or she shouldn't do. And we'd always agree up front in the car, right? Or, you know, on the, on the meeting before we, Zoom meeting these days, before we went into the meeting for real, we would agree a safe word, right? quote, unquote, safe word. And, and the safe word was interesting. So it was an interesting safe word. So if we found that the other person wasn't assuming their right roles, right? So I was doing all the talking, for example. How many times did you told you were interesting in that meeting? It took me about three months to figure out. But I had to give the sales guy permission. I'd be talking, they'd go, that's, that's so interesting, which is code for shut your mouth, boss, right? But it was a word that no, that the, the other side of the desk didn't perceive as something odd going on here. So right? did they have to change it to something like red cabbage, like your s and uh, cream? <laughs> yeah, right. Your pineapple. So, <laughs> no. So I think the number one rule, I think, is stick to your roles. And sometimes you see the manager they have agreed up front that the manager will take that call. But I, I talk about it in the, if, are, you a star, are you a Trekkie fan, Star Trek? Yeah. Yeah, so the prime directive is not to get involved, right? The prime directive of Starfleet is don't get involved, don't change history, don't change cultures and all of that kind of nonsense, right? So that prime directive of you're here as a fly in the wall is, is super important and just and, and, to re, and, and to record. And do you know what? When it's done right, it actually complements the client. This whole thing is about attitude. Back to a question that you asked about 20 minutes ago, Marcus. The objective is to figure out what things need managing, what things need coaching, and what things need training. Because we have this thing called the success triangle. There's a model we've been using. Do you know how many years we've had the BAT? Uh, yeah, like decades, right? And we've trained it, how many people? Millions of people, I imagine. And so we talked about success is the right behaviors, attitudes, and techniques, which means that QED, that if somebody's struggling in something, there's some kind of deficit in behavior or attitude or, or thinking, right? Or technique. And how does reading a sales report or a monthly report or looking at a spreadsheet with somebody's dollars on the end of it versus target, tell you about any of that kind of stuff. Of course it doesn't. So you have to observe those things for real. And so when Pep Guardiola is watching the game, he's thinking, is this a management stuff? In other words, is it behavior-based? So we have to manage that. And typically, behavior-based stuff, that's 
here's my point, that managers think, you know, if you're a hammer, you think everything is a nail. And managers typically think that they can, quote unquote, manage everything. So if somebody is failing in some way, they think, or struggling in some way, they think that management is the solution to all to everything. But it isn't because management is only the solution to behavioral issues. You can't manage somebody's attitude. You can only coach their attitude, beliefs, core values, commandments, ethos, right? You can't manage that stuff. You can only coach that stuff. So when you look at, and you can only train technique and skill. So when you look at our BAT triangle, which is our model for success, we're looking for instances where we think, well, that's a training need, that's a management need, or that's a coaching need. And if it's conceptual, right, then it's coaching. If it's technical, then it's either a behavioral base, which is management, or skill base, which is training. And Pep Guardiola is making this assessment of all of his people constantly. And that's why I want us to go on the ride-alongs, because you don't know this unless you're actually, uh, you don't know how they're behaving, how they're responding, because a monthly report tells you nothing about tonality and speed and equal business stature and need for approval. You have to observe those things in the same way that they do, the surgeon does, the architect does, the pilot does. And every pursuit, nearly every pursuit, if you can think of not only sports team, but entertainers, uh, actors, they have coaches and they work with them very, very regularly. And yet for salespeople, they think they're above it. And I don't know why they believe that. I suspect it's down to brittle and fragile ego more than anything else. The best salespeople I know have an intellectual humility and a vulnerability about them that allows them to learn and be coached. I've had a second example of uh, a situation today where a salesperson was completely butchering a call uh, right. with a prospect. And the prospect said, this isn't really working, is it? And he sent him off to go and have a coffee and come back in 10 minutes. And he was leaving and picked up his briefcase and said, no, 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 you've forgotten your coat. So off he went, had his coffee, came back, and they've been fast friends ever since because it actually helped him to realize that he wanted to buy what the guy was selling, but he was doing such a shit job of it. <laughs> right. And so you know, they've, been work- they've been working together, I don't know, 20, 30 years. It's not the first time I've heard clients or customers do that because they recognize the value that the salesperson can make, but they're just doing such a bad job. So again, when we look at the upfront contract, yeah. very specifically, what is the upfront contract? the manager needs to make with the salesperson and what is the agreement that they need to reach before they go in? Okay, so depending on on the circumstance, and there are instances where the manager is just there to observe. There are instances where the manager is going to lead. There are instances where they're going to double head. So the upfront has got to be specific to who's who's going to run the meeting, right? And so most of the time, a significant, and I can't, you know, depend on a particular organization and what's going on. The majority of the time, I want the manager to be observing, right? And so the upfront contract is, and for the first time, it's it feels and sounds a little bit contrived. But once you've done it 15 times with the same sales guy, the actual the upfront contract, it doesn't need to be quite so detailed, but it basically boils down to, 
first of all, we've got to explain who I am and why I'm here. Although if it's done well, you know, you're not doing this in the car, so you're not surprising the, you know, the client or the prospect because there should be an agenda up front. And it should be clear that when we're talking about cast of characters in the meeting, the salesperson should make it clear that, all right, those are the guys on your side. And on my side, I've got my boss coming in. Here's what he or she is, uh, 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 the purpose of their, of their uh, involvement today. So it's just by saying, hey, boss, well, shall I walk you through the process? Might that help? Yes. So we have a four-stage process that basically says stage one is at the start of the day or, or the start of the call. What do we do? What do we discuss? Which I shall talk about in a second. Stage two this then is the pre-call plan. Stage three is then in the call, and then stage four is the debrief. So when we're thinking then about, all right, let's stage one, the plan for the day is the blueprint for the day, right? It's just at 30,000 feet. What is it that we are going to see today? And this is the sales manager asking the individual, what have you prepared for me today? And they're really thinking, is the world going to smell of paint today, right? We know what that means right now. It's just going to be a super stage managed day. It's really broad objectives, customer mix. They're not asking for permission. They're just five-minute discussion about what at 30,000 feet, what's the plan for the day? We're going here, then we're going there, then we're going here, then we're going there. Great. And then second piece is what are the aims for the day? This is like at 10,000 feet, good spread of activity, good spread of clients. What I'm actually looking for is the most quote-unquote average day that we can. So it isn't stage managed, right? That's a 10-minute conversation. Now, I think coming back to your question, Marcus, what's the strategy for this call, right? So now we're getting down to the what are we about? What are we trying to achieve? What's our primary objective? What's our secondary objective? What roles are you playing? What roles am I playing? Agreeing that up front, right? And that's just a five-minute conversation. And we're still either you know, in our office or, or we're in the car outside uh, the, the, the customer's premises. Next thing we're going to then do is we're going to structure the upfront contract coming back to your point. So we're going to make it super clear. So the upfront contract is not only their agenda and out, we know what upfront contracts is. So it's permissions, it's their agenda, our agenda, frame the yes, frame the no, define the next steps. Okay. And also define who we are time of the meeting and all that good stuff, cast of characters, right? So we've structured that upfront contract, but we haven't yet practiced it. So now we're going to practice it because the first time you try a move isn't on Super Bowl Sunday, right? You've got to practice this stuff up front. Up front. So we would, still in the car or still in our office, would spend 10 minutes role-playing the key elements of the upfront contract, role-playing questioning, role play pushback, role play. What do we do when engine four catches fire, right? We've got to role play that. Objectives. The objections and work out how you're going to reverse them. Correct. All of that perfect stuff. All right. Now we're into stage three. So we go to the meeting where everybody says hello and they talk about the weather and the price of fish and they explain who, who everybody is, what they're doing. And now it's time for the manager. If uh, he's, he or she's done, <laughs> done everything properly, to follow that prime directive, right? And they're looking for stuff you will never see in a monthly report. They're looking for tonality and speed and nurturing and, and equal business stature. And they're looking for adherence to the game, the game plan. And how do they respond when, when the opposition, and I don't want to make it, I don't want to make it combative, right? But 
when they do something unexpected, right? When engine four does catch fire, right? So, and they're looking for coaching opportunities. They're observing like crazy and they're recording like crazy. They're, they're writing everything down. They're not just watching there with their arms folded. They're writing furiously, taking really, really detailed notes. They're writing not only what they're seeing and what they're hearing, but also what they're feeling. And, and it's all in the pauses, you know, right? Taking a very accurate um, if you like, history. They then thank everybody. By the way, if anybody's following along, all of this, there's an acronym and it spells out passport and radar. That's, that's the, those are the tools that we use, right? So we're at T of passport, which is the thanks, right? So we're thanking everybody. And we're also going to remind them why you were there again, right? So I think that that nice reminder at the end, thank you for allowing me to, to sit in and observe Thank you, and we're doing this. Why do we do this? Because we value Tom as much as hopefully you value Tom, and we're trying to make Tom better. When we help improve Tom, that's going to serve you better, Mr. Right? So we do all of that good stuff and then agree the next steps. That's cool. So now is when it gets really – now the whole point of it starts to reveal itself. When we start to either review that call and then later on in the day review the day. And I bring this to – do you know anyone in the military, Marcus? Yep. Got... I'm an army brat. So people in the military, army specifically, uh, they have, uh, I think it's chapter eight in the book, we talk about cold wash and hot wash, or the hot wash and cold wash. So when, when the military have, you know, they don't just say, hey, guys, the objective is let's capture the hill or capture the compound or the, the house or whatever it is charge right they don't do that what they do do is they say what's the plan what's our pre-core plan which we just talked about earlier what they then do is they execute the plan in a in a, in a dynamic and fast-moving environment like a sales call often and then afterwards they review well that review that they do immediately after the battle's finished or the campaign's finished that's called the hot wash when all the guns are still hot when everything emotions are maybe hot right and they call that a hot wash while they're cleaning the guns of all the grit and all that kind of stuff, and the guns, the barrels are still hot. What they then do is when some things have settled down, right, all the emotion has come out of it, they'll then do a cold wash afterwards. And a hot wash is short and quick, and a cold wash is a bit longer. But the interesting thing that they do is they ask the same questions in the hot wash and the cold wash. The hot wash questions were, uh, sorry, are what, where, what, what, right? So what were we trying to accomplish? Where did we hit or miss whatever our objective was? What caused that result? What should we start, stop, and continue to do, right, for our next battle, for our next campaign? So the hot wash questions are what, where, what, what. The cold wash questions at the end of the day are what did we learn today? Where could we improve? What will we concentrate on for the next few weeks? What will success or failure look like? So it's what, where, what, what again, right? So we're going to do that cold uh, hot wash <clears throat> or, the, or, or, or the cold wash. At the end of that, we're agreeing some key points and we're going to prioritize the things that we need to do. So in the training, back to the, coming back to the training field, Pep Guardiola have watched the match. They had a plan for the match. They executed the match. And at the end of the match, they're saying, we need to practice this, this, and this. And now they're agreeing the stuff that needs uh, work, this course correction, how we're going to measure it, all of that kind of stuff. So they'll do the full debrief, right? Agree the key issues, 
record the next steps. So then they're going to record the next steps, agree the learning points, share the records. People sign a piece of paper. That's how it was done in my first job where everybody, so I got a copy, the individual got a copy. This could be done electronically now, of course. And a copy went into their, into, into their file. And so that process of passport and radar and agreeing and, and all of these hot washes and cold washes, why do we do all of that? We do it because the best thing that a manager can do is in, to improve, because a manager's, a manager's objective, what would you say? How would you define what a sales manager's objectives are? Could you? Could you well, I, I think they have four functions. Hire right. the best people, yep. get the best out of them, right. make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day and help them clear roadblocks and protect them from acts of idiocy from above. I love the last one. Yes, they do. I think that, you know, you can go into any Barnes & Noble or Waterstones and uh, you go to the business section, you can find miles and miles and miles, of shelves upon shelves of books about management. For me, it boils down to this, that a sales manager's job is um, to improve results by creating a team of people who are self-sufficient with a high degree of skill and a high degree of motivation. So if they've got people who are self-sufficient, in other words, can get on and do stuff, um, if they have a, a high degree of skill, so they when they do stuff, they do good stuff, and a high degree of motivation, so they do lots of stuff, right? What the ride-along does is it is it if it's done properly, it feeds all of those three uh, all of those three things. What well, well, or those four things? It improves results because people are getting better. It creates a team, great, who are self-sufficient, which is what all ride-alongs are about. They're all about self-sufficiency. They're about so that the surgeon doesn't have to have somebody with them. So the pilot doesn't have to have somebody with them, right? So they're about self-sufficiency with a high degree of skill, right? Because that, and that's the muscle memory, that's the training, a high degree of motivation so that they do lots of stuff. So what the ride-along does is it feeds all of those things. If done well, if done poorly, it kills all of those things. So I actually believe that sales managers should be taught how to do ride-alongs. And that's... I agree. And again, just final point before we start wrapping up. Sales managers receive 5% of the funding for training in sales, but they are the most pivotal people in a sales organization. You can have an average bunch of salespeople with a great manager and they will knock the ball out of the park. You can have a team of individuals who have a bad manager, and you can turn a bunch of A players into a bunch of C players inside one or two quarters. So if you're going to spend money on training and you have a limited budget, spend it on your managers. Help them help their people, because that's their job. Day to day, they are the most undertrained and in the most precarious position of any people in any business. And the route to management is essentially your idiot boss gets fired because he was crap. Then you get tapped on the shoulder because you're a top producer and you're told, congratulations, Antonio, you're, you're a manager now. Off you go. So you get the upgrade from the BMW to the Jag. And now you do what was done to you, which was crap anyway. Yeah. Uh, so the challenge here is managers really need to up their game. And what COVID has done, I, I have a view 
that COVID is like um, the fiction of a summer slump. You know, there's no such thing as a summer slump. Right. A summer slump exists in the salesperson's mind. Now, yes, I get it. If you are in hospitality, you're an airline, or you're in events, then it's a pretty shitty time. But for many of the rest of you, this is just like the fiction of a summer slump. Your medium has changed, so you're not going out pressing the flesh anymore. And if you're not adapting to the new reality, which is using technology like Zoom or 8x8 or Teams, then you're going to struggle and you need to adapt or die. But what this has done is it's shown the massive deficit in management capability. And that was always there. And what this has done is it's highlighted it, it's exposed it. So in terms of this era, this situation, the new normal, where if we do get back to normal at some point, chances are you're not going to be stepping on a plane because if you do, you're going to be in quarantine for a couple of weeks either end. Um, (laughs) So you're going to have to use these technologies. And how does that change how you do the equivalent of a ride-along? That's a great question. So I have a client. When COVID first happened, so, and we were all at that point, maybe you and I, not so much, Marcus, but lots of people, when it first happened, which feels like a, like a lifetime ago, but it was only about six weeks ago, right? But when it first happened, everybody started panicking and running around like headless chickens, right? You probably remember those early days. One of the most more level-headed of my clients, they sent an email to their people. And he actually said two things. And I've talked about the first thing and I haven't talked about the second thing, but I'll talk about both for you now very quickly. First of all, he said, this is perfect. This is brilliant. This is the best thing that could have happened to us. Not least because he's got a few hundred people and I'm sure his travel costs for the organization were massive, right? So because those people, and they were all flying first class. Why? Because it's a big brand and I can't, I can't even imagine we're talking millions, right? Because it was all international as well. Anyway, he sent an email out very, very quickly and said, this is the best thing to the managers, right? So he was the VP of sales and he sent it to all of the managers and had a bunch of managers. And he said, this is great because all of the time that we spent booking flights, riding to airports, wait, checking in, waiting for planes, getting on the plane, traveling, landing, hiring a car, driving, all of that unproductive dead time, I want that time now spent on role plays and ride-alongs, he said. I thought, that's terrific, right? I thought, great. And and I'm talking about the guy who, 10 minutes before that, released a book on ride-alongs. I'm like, this is like great. So, um, So quite enlightened, and he said, this is great. And he said, and you can do more ride-alongs than you've ever done in your life. That's what he said, right? I'm like, yeah, terrific, because all that travel isn't, isn't necessary anymore. And you, can do, you can do huge numbers. Instead of doing one to three meetings a day, you can do six to seven. Yeah. Every one of them can be recorded. And it's yeah. not about being big brother. It's about capturing the teachable moments. Then you can be more productive. And I was speaking to John Delogier from 8x8 yesterday who's their VP, global VP of channel sales. And he's saying, uh, he said that he read a report that production has gone up 20%. Just because people are sat at home and they walk yeah. past the computer and that, well, yeah, let's just do, you know. So I think... Uh, 
let me just, the second thing that he said on his on his on his email. The other thing he said was, if we don't come out of this stronger and better and faster and more trained with more prospects in our pipeline, and we didn't know how long it was going to last then than ever before. Then he said we never lacked the time; we lacked the discipline. Great way of looking that's, at it. That's so I shall steal that. Right. <laughs> Tell me his name so I can credit him once. Grant Gamble. Grant Gamble, brilliant. Okay. Um, let's take this to the next stage. I have a theory, and I think I'm probably going to be proved right. Given that no one is likely to be doing a lot of business travel for the next 12 to 18 months, whilst many countries will be instituting quarantines when you land in their country for a couple yeah. of weeks. Yeah. So you have to have a damn good reason to hop on a plane, which means that your field sales force is going to have to adapt. And to be perfectly honest, I think this is, represents a God-given opportunity to furlough and get rid of a lot of the dead wood in yeah. the sales force. And what really needs to happen now is a massive emphasis on recruiting brilliant special forces unit partners and coaching and training them and doing ride-alongs with them electronically because they can hop in the car and yep. they can drive 20 minutes up the road to see a customer. Uh, you don't have to spend five hours in a plane trying to get to. So what advice would you give to channel managers who historically, let's be honest, they're not known for being fantastic at what they do, despite the fact it is the hardest job there is in sales bar none. I agree. Um, it's the place that Tim Nice but Dim goes to die because he failed in direct sales. And it's such a shame. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. No, no, that's okay. I'm worried about giving you the answer because there's any channel people listening, they're going to think this is heresy. And this is going to take, this is going to take some out-of-the-box thinking to agree with me, right? And I'd be interested in knowing what your view is, Marcus. So before I answer that, let me answer this. Let, <laughs> uh, let me ask you this, or make this point. A lot of things that we've been talking about today are attitude-based. attitude, attitude based. You know, when we're talking about looking for coaching needs and all of that kind of stuff, right? So we manage behaviors, coach attitudes, train skills. You and I both know that we don't train anybody unless we've assessed them first. We don't recruit anybody unless we've assessed them first. And we do a few different types of assessments, almost like a, a selling x-ray and a selling MRI or a, or a management x-ray, a management uh, MRI. Why do we do those things? Well, we do those things to look for areas of gaps in what we're going to see in behaviors, attitudes, and techniques. And, and we tell people that when we're doing assessments for them, that we should only do assessments if we're going to pay attention to the results. Okay, cool. So when there are people under our direct control, we seem to be happy and comfortable with the concept of doing assessments. So you know where this is going already, and <laughs> you're probably not going to like the sound of it. I think if you are appointing a channel partner and you're appointing people to represent you in the world, I know this is going to get pushed back. I think they should also, you know, the people that are going to be quote unquote selling or representing you should also be assessed. I think I should. I, I think agree. it's in my book, Making oh. Channel Sales Work. We, we actually say that you should assess them. You should assess the channel managers. But why wouldn't you assess the salespeople? Right. Representing your brand, right? Um, exactly. And you, so, you need to train them as if they're your own. So right. why you? the, the I, best channel managers that I've ever met, and I've interviewed dozens and dozens of them over the last right. three years, 
they spend 50 to 70% of their time in the field helping their salespeople right. to get deals over the line. Terrific. They are coaching constantly. So, no, you're not getting any pushback from me. I suspect right. there'll be a lot of people out there who'll disagree. Uh, yeah, but I'm sure there will. But then how can we help? You know, it's like help me help you, right? The Jerry Maguire thing. Help me help you. How can we, you know, it's in, we want our channels to succeed. We want them to sell lots of stuff. We want them to be successful. Otherwise, we wouldn't be partnering with them. And the way that they are successful is this, is if they perform their role well. Right, so we want we want our channel partners to improve results by being self-sufficient with a high degree of skill and a high degree of motivation. We want the same thing about partners as we want from our, our individuals. And so, why can't why why shouldn't we ride along our partner our, our partner distribute distributors? I think we should. I think we should be doing that stuff. So, so again, that's going to that that's that's. That's not normally done, but that doesn't mean it's not right, okay? It, not in my experience. I've had lots of good proportion of my sales when I was a manager go through distribution. The thing about distribution is we want, we think if we're front of mind and we get share of voice, then that's all we can do. But I disagree with that. That's complete bollocks. It is. I'm saying, I don't mean you and I want that. I'm saying that Normally, they think if we get share of mind, we get share, if we're front of mind and get share of voice, that's all we need. But it says nothing about skill. It says nothing about attitude. It says nothing about the kind of things that we really need out of our channel team. Make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So we should we should assess the people that are representing us and selling on our behalf, and we should. It's our responsibility to help them do the job as well as possible. I'll tell you why they don't, because often our channel partners will often carry our competitors' products also. They are in business for their reasons, not yours. They don't think about you, your company, or products from one day to the next. You have to give them a reason to want to sell your stuff. And you have to train them to sell generically and knowing that they will sell your competitors' stuff and and using what you've trained them. That's the big big stumbling block. Antonio, we've got to wrap up because uh, we've uh, come to the top of the hour. Let me ask you this one question then. If you could go back to your earliest time in management and you could advise the idiot Antonio who thought he knew everything as he was <laughs> all puffed up um, and he uh, was given a management role, what advice would you give him? I would tell him to journal more. I would tell him. Because for me, knowledge is evaluated experience. And I thought, like you did, right, that you would just get better by osmosis. And I thought I was a pretty groovy guy anyway, and I didn't realize what I didn't know. And I waited for my, the companies that I was working for to spoon feed me my development, and I didn't take enough responsibility for my development. And I would think, if I journaled, I would have realized my gaps more. Journaling helps me figure out what I need to fix. So the rule here is the weakest ink is stronger than the strongest memory. If you don't write it down, you are cursed to repeat it. And I that, see. frankly, just plain fucking stupid. <laughs> well, Antonio, how can people get help? Antonio.garido, which is A-N-T-O-N-I-O. 
dot Garrido, G-A-R-R-I-D-O, at Sandler.com, Antonio.Garrido at Sandler.com. Please do write to me. I, I love trying to help people out. Fabulous. Antonio Garrido, thank you very much. Much appreciated. Thank you, Marcus. Talk to you soon. So, Antonio Garrido, thank you very much. Much appreciated. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation. Pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you'd like to get in touch, then please email me at mcauchi at sandler.com. And if there's somebody you think would be a great guest who can talk about sales, management, hiring, branding, marketing, then please let me know who they are and I'll try and get them on the podcast. Much appreciated. So take care. Happy selling. Stay safe. Bye-bye.